Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, hey ho, Mooncat and Co. is your Pavojo. Hello. Before we get to the business in hand, we do have some feedback to share. A few weeks back, we were talking about Man About the House, or to give it a Spanish title. Un hombre en casa. I think I said el hombre. I think I looked again. It was un hombre en casa. Anyway, we were talking about Richard Sullivan and how he had a way about him that was slightly different to John Ritter in Free's Company. Yeah, we didn't want to say dark or heavy, but yes, there was a quality. Well, Mike Scott tweeted us to say, I think the phrase you were searching for regarding Richard O'Sullivan was something of the night. That sounds even more sinister. (laughs) (laughs) And it was quite odd, actually, that with no apparent provocation, Anne Wurikin made that comment about Richard O'Sullivan in the House of Commons (laughs) all those years ago. Also, a couple of other bits and pieces we've had on Twitter. Bean is a carrot, noted Mr. Humphreys breaking the fourth wall in the Are You Being Served episode 50 years on. She also pointed out the existence of a brand of amber ale, 5.2%, called Wolfie Smith. I've continued with Citizen Smith after we did that, and I've just got up to the beginning of Series 4, and it's weird. Are you going to reveal something but the end of Series 3, perchance? It's weird. That's as much as I'm willing to reveal. I think you could call it a definitive ending that is then undone. And After Henry's a bit the same. I finished Series 3 of After Henry. And I think that was supposed to end and then kept going. And then kept going with the horrible synth piano playing the theme tune. Oi. In Loving Memory Syndrome. Well, we need to, I was going to say, we need to start a list of sitcoms which undergo significant alteration in their last season. And it could be incidental music, for example, or it could be some other aspect about them. It could be that they suddenly... Are there any sitcoms that have ever changed entirely from VT to film? And I do already have one example in my head, but are there any others? Can we think of any others that have gone entirely film? Or or some sort of seismic sort of change in appearance like that? The sitcom I was thinking of was Small Potatoes, Channel 4, 1999, with Tommy Tiernan and Omar Jalili. And that's VT with the shaky sort of camera shots as spoofed by Father Ted. And in 2001, it has a film appearance. I don't know for sure if it's film, but it's suddenly all the shots are now absolutely static and there's no studio audience and it appears to be on film. It's the only instance that I can think of where a show has changed so fundamentally in its appearance, one series to the next. But if you know of any others, any other examples, then tweet us at the Sitcom Club and let us know. This week, we're talking about the 2009 remake of Reginald Perrin. And per what title does that go by? Reggie Perrin, not the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin. Just to eliminate any misunderstanding, this is a reboot. This is not a, a sequel. So it's a restaging of the original and the legacy of Reginald Perrin in this universe at least hasn't happened yet. Is that, is that about right? I'm not sure it's going to happen at all. I mean, should we just start with the fact that 21st century Reggie seems to be a very, very different character? Yes, he is. And I quite like that fact. I mean, when we were talking a few weeks ago about the proposed new Dad's Army film, which has all gone a bit quiet. I think that's not opening till next year now. Well, it was suggested by people in the know that the actors in this new version were effectively doing the old actors' versions of the characters 
And I said, I don't see the point of that. It's not like you're going to improve upon it if you try and do it like that. So why not do it as an original thing and bring something new to the characters? And that's what they do in Reginald Pound. So it's not Martin Clunes trying to do a takeoff of Land Roster. He's his own guy and he's his own character. So even though there are quite a few little hints and allusions to the old series dotted along the way over the course of the six episodes, because we're talking exclusively about series one, then it is a complete and absolute reboot by and large. I mean, one of the things you sometimes see said in remake discussions is why not just call it something completely different? To which often the reply would come back, it's too close to the original concept to do that. Sometimes you'll get something that almost just seems to have slapped the brand name on something completely different. It's like putting Coke labels on a Vimto bottle. And people want to, yes, but there's just, just enough of the original concept that if they didn't use the original name, they'd get sued. I don't think that's the case with this. I made the mistake of watching this and suggesting, because my idea, I made the mistake of suggesting this immediately after I'd watched the original first series, Fallen Rise, Reginald Perrin. So I'm coming to this with Leonard Rossiter's version very fresh in my mind. And after a while, I couldn't really see why this was Reggie Perrin. A lot of the time it just seemed like an office sitcom and really only the last episode and the last few minutes of the last episode have the full weight of the original idea there and for the rest of the time it just seemed like a guy who was unhappy with his job and pining after the new girl at the office. Now when's the last time you watched the original? Not seen the original for quite a while, maybe about sort of 10 years or so. Okay so you could come to this relatively fresh. Yes. What did you think? Overall, I enjoyed it. There were a few bits and pieces where I thought, yeah, this seems a little bit sort of clunky and what have you, and we'll talk about them over the course of the, the hour or so. But by and large, yes, I think as its own show, it stands up fairly well. My biggest issue with it, I suppose, is a perfectly legitimate one to have, and that's I'm not entirely understanding where Reggie's coming from. And I say this as somebody who spent a lot of time working in an office environment, and I don't work in an office environment anymore. I've no wish to go back into an office environment because by the end of it, I didn't enjoy it, and I didn't enjoy sort of corporate culture and so on. So I get that point. I understand that much. The fact that he concerns himself with the triviality of what it is that he's doing on a day-to-day basis, and he's not very good with like small talk with fellow employees and so on. But... On a sort of grander sort of scheme, part of me was sort of thinking, do you know what Reggie needs? It's a hobby. You should treat that job exactly as it is. It's a job. That's what pays the mortgage. And then he should get something that he can really obsess about out of the office. Whereas he doesn't really seem to have a lot of outside interests. Now, am I being overly simplistic there or what? No, I think you have a point. Well, we're going to get inside Reggie's head later. Overall, I didn't enjoy it. But of course, I had just been watching Series 1. Series 2 is coming in the mail tomorrow from Netflix. And I wasn't really engaging with it. I thought there was something lacking. The themes didn't seem as fresh and unusual as they did in the, what year, 1975? uh, 70s version. And my wife had been watching original Reginald Parent with me. We didn't watch Reggie Parent together, but she saw some of it. And when she caught me watching it the other day, getting the final few watched, get ready to record this, she just looked and went, 
That's horrible. <laughs> so and I wasn't asking for her opinion for the show. She just took one look and, oh, this again. Oh, dear. Now, recently, for reasons I'm not entirely sure about, but there is one small reason which might crop up on a future Jaffa Cakes, I've been looking at Western generational definitions. Well, I've been looking at Wikipedia. I haven't been doing any particular academic research. Mooncat, are you aware of what generation you belong to? We were actually talking about this off air the other day, and I seem to remember that we were talking about baby boomers, and then there was something called, I think, Generation X. Is that the one I'm in? I don't know. I, I, I... Yes, you're Generation X. Okay. So, I think it's because the other day I'd been talking with somebody about talking about how people are having children slightly older than they used to. At least in recent memory, I'm sure if we go back and back, we'll find that everything new is old again. My parents were in their 30s when they had me. Their parents were in their 40s, which explains a lot about my cultural frames of reference, because half of my grandparents were born in the 19th century. It might explain why sometimes, when I don't understand what somebody says, I will say, what did Horace say, Winnie? And, <laughs> and normally I don't get much reaction to that. Would you believe that Mr. Humphreys just said it when I was oh, being served last hey! week? <laughs> well, that's fine, because he is probably greatest generation. I think it goes, right, Generation X, before that baby boomers, before that silent generation, before that greatest generation, and before that the lost generation, I think. In the 70s, Reginald Iolanthi Perrin, 46 years old, is a member of the silent generation. I remember now, it was somebody said that Don Draper in Mad Men... God, are we mentioning Mad Men a lot? Or what? It keeps coming up. Should I be watching Mad Men? Maybe you should. So I was reading something which said Don Draper is a member of the silent generation. Pre-baby boomers. Birth date's going to be roughly between 1925 and 1945, but there is, of course, wiggle room. I think that's relevant. I'm not entirely sure why they're called the silent generation, but I think there is something, there's not many of them. There was a bit of a birth slump during the Depression, and partially just their attitudes. Ah, no, it does tie up with sitcoms. Remember we saying A Man About the House, the tragedy of Mildred Roper is that Mildred Roper should have been born in the 40s, because really what she'd like to do is be out with Robin and Chrissy and Joe, having fun as a young person, because she didn't do that when she was that age, or at least not enough. They didn't have rock. They had rationing. So it's somebody who has seen that whole change in society happen, and it's happened just too late for them. That's one way of looking at it. They've grown up in the deferential society, not particularly open about their emotions. There's a lot to be said about the wartime attitudes to sexuality there was a lot of it about that's how we got the baby boomers but there wasn't quite the same attitude towards it there wasn't the sense of freedom if they had freedom they didn't really know it they might have had freedom at a cost there were shame issues and reginald iolanthi perrin was born in 1930 it's been a long time since i read the book so i can't remember anything about his school days but i think we can get a good idea of his school days so he'll have been at school in the 30s and 40s. He will have grown up in the austerity 50s. He will have been a young man at that time. He would have probably been too old for rock and roll. He would have been really pushing it after his mid-20s. There's a story about Bill Hathy coming to the UK and his image suffering because of just how ridiculously old he was. 
and he was 27. So even if Reginald Perrin was young enough, because he's middle class, that would have been another barrier. So he'll have grown up in this well-structured society, and then the 60s have happened, and the 60s have happened while he's been working at Sunshine Desserts, and then we've had the permissive society, which even Terry Collier missed out on. Reggie Perrin was born in 1963. Now, what's his youth been like? So he's been young enough for punk and the new pop. And it doesn't matter how middle class you are, you can just about get away with it. I think, would he not be a little too young for punk? I mean, about sort of 14 or so. He's been young enough to watch it happen and think, those guys. There's that age where you're too young to be part of it, but you think, I want to be like those guys. Any younger, and it's like, those guys frighten me. Or maybe it was just me that was frightened of rock music when I was very small. Do you think that Reggie Perrin would have gone perhaps down the new romantic? Exactly. He's he's old enough to have done that. If he's missed out on it, there has to be a better reason than simply it just wasn't done. The number of things which are unsayable to his generation is far smaller than the previous one. So I think it kind of loses a lot of its theme. It's now about recapturing a youth, whereas originally I think it's about a youth that he never had. And the other thing is, I've said this before, it's really partially about the casting of Leonard Rossiter. The original show appears to me to be about madness. And the new one I don't think was about insanity. What was the point you made previously about the difference between Fall and Rise if David Knobb's original suggestion of Ronnie Barker had happened? I think Ronnie Barker would have, he would have had all the same pressures. We would have sort of understood that. But he would have been driven crazy. And maybe even not quite to the same pitch. He would have been broken by the system. He would have been, in a way, the little man. The everyman. And maybe the sense that it was a fairly recent thing. That it had only been like maybe the ages between 35 and 46 is when it really started to bite into him. Whereas with Leonard Rossiter, there was the feeling that he was like a clockwork toy that had just been wound every day since 1930. And now this build-up of insanity was going to burst. I don't think he makes... No, he does. He does it a couple of places. That Leonard Rossiter noise. He does it when I think Elizabeth picks a piece of fluff off his (laughs) jacket. And it's expressive of a certain frame of mind. If the person next to you goes, you should probably think about moving away. (laughs) Now, okay, I want to come back to something you said a minute ago about how Reggie Perrin's generation is a lot less that they wouldn't talk about. But a big issue of Reggie's appears to be the complete and utter silence during his daily commute. Now, maybe it's just me, but I actually quite like the complete and utter silence on public transport. I don't want to be the one guy who tries to have a bloody conversation with everybody. So I find it hard to sympathise with Reggie on this. Why is Reggie so concerned to have conversations with complete and utter strangers on the train? And yet... He has problems with small talk in the office. I guess he wants to have big and meaningful conversations and actually get to the nub of issues rather than just have polite chit-chat. 
But you yourself said he needs a hobby that sometimes you had a bit of difficulty sympathising with him. I think he's had a lot more chances to turn things around and change things than the original Reggie did. It appears that his wife, Nicola, not only has she got a particularly busy workload, just as he has, but she's also involved herself with lots of little groups and community bits and pieces and so on. So she's always dashing about. You can actually say probably she's got a bit too much on. But Reggie doesn't seem to have really anything else. He's got his friend, Monty, who famously tried to have sex with his pencil case during his French GCSE exam. That is an area which isn't really particularly explored in <laughs> great detail. And so occasionally self a pint with him, but otherwise, no. But that was, in my head, I was sort of thinking, this is what he needs. He needs something else so that he can have a nice work-life balance and be able to put all the nonsense of the corporate world and so on into its proper context. It's a means to an end. It's his job, and he's got a, a good career. Actually, as the new CJ, Chris, points out when they're sat in the office, do you hear that, he says? Silence. Isn't it lovely? You don't hear any of that in the factories in China where they make our razors. Can't hear yourself scream. So, you know, we're pretty lucky where we are. And actually, he's right. He is actually quite lucky in where he finds himself right now. That's not to say that he's got everything easy and he should just be grateful or whatever, but in comparison to a lot of people, he's got not a bad little sort of gig going on. So... I don't know, maybe I'm just sort of looking at it from a very black and white perspective, but... I was going to say that his midlife crisis was triggered by Jasmine, but he's already asking before he goes off to work about whether he should wear a white suit. I think that was the bit I liked most. The idea that he wants to wear a white suit to work. Well, let's just take a quick step back, because we haven't actually really set the scene properly. So, just to explain, we're talking about specifically Series 1, but there are two series of Reggie Perrin this is from 2009, and this is co-written by David Nobbs, of course, the creator of Fallen Wise, original parent, and Simon Nye, who, of course, had written for Martin Clunes in Men Behaving Badly previously. Nicola, Reggie's wife, is played by Faye Ripley, and the new CJ, Chris, is Neil Stook. And Lucy Lyman plays Jasmine, who is a new employee who arrives, and we'll speak more about her interaction with Reggie in just a moment. There's a really nice little visual gag, a sort of blink and you'll miss it, very early on in episode one, where Reggie arrives at his office via Sunshine Desserts, but that's not his office. <laughs> that's a nice oh, little, you liked that? Yeah, that's a nice little nod to the original. And he actually works at this... On the face of it, it's like a large corporation, but actually we find out that their market share is rather small in comparison to some of the big global conglomerates. And they make basically shaving gear, you know, all the bits and pieces. And constantly looking for new ridiculous ideas that they can invent to try and squeeze an extra few pence out of the buying public. Reggie's principal project when we arrive at first is the creation of the ten razor blade. Which I don't think has actually happened yet, has it? it? Certainly hasn't happened in the UK yet. It's surely just a matter of time. So that's the environment that Reggie's in. And we can tell also that his home life is not ideal because 
Nicola is always busy with something or other. And it's not like there's tension between them or anything like that, but it's clear that the marriage has stalled, perhaps. And they're really sort of using their home as just like a sort of base camp. So how did you sympathise or not with Reggie? Yeah, I don't think I did. I just tried to think in what ways I sympathised with him, and I didn't. But maybe that's just because I lack empathy. (laughs) I was too busy looking at the structure of the show and thinking about things where it differed from the original. And you might say, well, you can't compare it with the original. It's like, no, they've chosen to name that after something successful. So they've invited comparisons. Didn't Martin Clune slag off the original in like some pre-publicity and then really not Oh, I don't remember it? that. No. I remember Beyonce, who was in the new Pink what Panther What did Beyonce film? have to say about the fall and rise of Reginald Penn? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure, but I seem to recall that she was in the new Pink Panther film with Steve Martin a few years ago, and she gave this quotation... The new Pink Panther film. Pink Panther! (laughs) Sorry, just had to get that out of my head. Otherwise it was going to stay there. She made this comment about how she'd never seen the original Pink Panther films of Peter Sellers, but that these ones would be just as good. Which I thought was a rather odd statement to make. (laughs) So I don't recall Martin Clunes ever denigrating the original. It would be a bit odd, in all honesty, given David Knob's involvement in this. It would be a bit strange if if he'd done that. I don't know. It just seems to be something that comes with remakes, remounts, reboots, that you say, obviously, maximum respect to the original, but it was also terrible, and now we're going to do it right. Like, uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, the remake of that where one of the people said, yes, we've had to be more clever and subtle this time. Subtle was not the word. (laughs) Yes, let's get Gemma Jones to shout the underlying theme into the camera. And one thing that struck me was the whole thing with Jasmine. So, new girl in the office, and he's smitten, and he's thinking about an affair. And I guess that's maybe supposed to parallel Reggie's fixation with John. But something interesting struck me about John on my rewatch. I'm afraid this is going to be an AB comparison. I can't help it. That's what all my notes are. She's actually quite mousy and plain. When was the last episode of... Not on your Nelly. What year? 75, was it not? So Sue Nichols is straight out of being Big Brenda. She's straight out of being dressed up as the Dolly Bird type. They've clearly taken the decision that Sue Nichols, she's now a brunette, hair in a bun, big glasses, and they don't really do much of that, you know, you're beautiful under these glasses stuff. They've dressed her down. Joan is not a siren. And I quite like the idea that in some ways it's not really that Reggie wants to have an affair. He just wants to have a relationship. He fantasised about her, but maybe it was just more of the fact that they weren't just a couple of people in the office. They could talk. Reggie hasn't connected to people the way he wants to. Whereas Jasmine is introduced. She's the new girl. And she's conventionally attractive. It did just seem to be about a middle-aged man lusting after a younger woman. And again, it wasn't like a symptom of madness. It was just, I don't know, with this Reggie, I just yeah, let's pull yourself together. <laughs> and it would have been more interesting if he'd started lusting after Vicky, his secretary. Because she's meant to be stupid and she's meant to be quite dull. And it would have been really interesting if Reggie had just seen something in her. He's having maybe fantasies about her, but there was just something protective in him 
or he saw something that he knew was there that wasn't coming out. That would have been more interesting to me. Jasmine just seems like the girl you're meant to fall for in a rom-com. Okay, now we've got change in the dynamic because, as you said, initially it's Reggie Perrin and his secretary, Joan. So, in a way, there's a nice sort of bond there in that Joan is the person who Reggie's probably going to have the most communication with each day, and it sort of then follows from then on, sort of logically, that he would fall for her. I mean, he probably has more contact with Joan every single day than he does with his own wife, for example. Whereas, as you say, Jasmine, he doesn't know anything about her. Never met her, because she's brand new to the company. He does refute the suggestion at one point that this is a midlife crisis, but you do sort of get that impression that that's exactly what's going on here, because there isn't any of the sort of madness element of Nana Roster. But everything else has lost its craziness. His other co-workers, Anthony and Steve, one of them has his catchphrase, I'm almost physically excited by this. But if we compare that with, I didn't get where I am today, great, super, they're a loop. It's just going to happen again and again. Scenes play out the same as last time. And you get the sense of a big machine that's grinding Reggie in its gears. Whereas in this, some of the characters are quite funny in and of themselves. They say funny things. I mean, Chris is quite normal sitcom bad guy. We even see a vulnerable side. He's never unapproachable the same way that CJ is. And also, Reggie might have little fantasies, but original Reggie, he either tries to send CJ mad or kill him. There's one point where they think that CJ is dead as a direct result of Reggie's insane act of sabotage on his fishing weekend. You look at that original series, it actually travels quite quickly. The suicide attempt, I think it comes in episode four, the fake suicide. Because I was thinking, how much of this is... How much of this is series one and series two? It can't be moving this quickly. When are we going to see Martin Wellborn for the first time? Well, it's usually the case with reboots and what have you that they're racing towards what they consider to be the interesting bit of the story. Yes. Whereas, actually, Reggie Perrin is going more slowly than Reginald Perrin because, like you say, we don't get to the classic scene on the beach until right at the end of series one. There's little implications that it is about the alienation of modern life. But then again, aren't a lot more sitcoms since the original Reginald Perrin already about that? It seems to be full of petty annoyances. How would you make a sitcom in the society of the early 21st century, the first decade and a half, about the things that would actually drive somebody insane? Because I think that's not here. And that's the bit that I liked in the original. Maybe it's because I'm a bit on the edge myself. Okay, now, I'm going to explore an avenue now. And I know I sound very much like the wellness person, as she's called, who constantly comes out with little platitudes and what have you. Now, this is my question about the original Doc Morrissey. The companies really have a doctor in the building? I've got to say, I, I, previously I've worked for two very large corporations and I have absolutely no recollection of ever having a doctor in attendance. We had, like, phone numbers. 
you know, it was like uh, if you're stressed, you can ring this 0800 number and you can speak to somebody from Bupa or something like that. But there was never actually anybody who was there in attendance that you went and met or anything like that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a contrivance for the original. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something that actually happened. I'll tell you what I've got on my MP3 player. Separate MP3 players for speech and music. We all do it, right? I have a bunch of episodes of Bristol because I found it something about it helps me. There's a newspaper sleep. cartoon about Eric Bristol. Don't play dumb. No, you know, you, I don't know what you mean. You don't know Bristol. No. Right, there's a newspaper cartoon called Bristol about a little man who works in an office. Can I just check? That's not some expression, is it? You don't know Bristol, pal. <laughs> <laughs> and they did radio adaptations in the 90s with Michael Williams as Bristol. And Rodney Buse was one of his co-workers. And it's set in this bizarre hybrid. Where there were a few moments where they mentioned something and it's like, all oh, right, so this is meant to be the present, but they have a tea lady who brings the trolley in. And there's things they say that it sounds to me like it's the working environment of the 50s to the 70s. I think in the original strip, Bristol might even wear a black jacket and striped trousers to work. I'm thinking, well, if there was once a time when they had tea ladies... I don't know, I've never actually worked in an office, but from what I know from friends who did work in the office, I think the tea ladies were long gone. And didn't have canteens that had dinner ladies you could see, just like school. So maybe they did have office doctors, whereas office wellness persons seems to really stretch it to snapping point. Well, actually, there I would sort of disagree. Oh, okay, about your superior knowledge. Well, no, it's not... It's you not... worked in an office that had a nurse. No, 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 there's not that kind of thing going on. But... All the kind of pish that she's coming out with is the kind of stuff that companies do engage in now because she actually said at one point, oh, we don't use the word doctor. And the stuff that she's coming out with, it's she's into all the sort of, you know, putting on like the dolphin noises and what have you and the ambient light. Yeah, exactly. So it does strike me as if that's the kind of hokum that a large corporation probably would find itself but do you think it would be more likely that she'd just be brought in for a seminar well we don't know for example she could be working out of that office once a week or maybe just exactly yeah an office in the building exactly and then the rest of the time she's this location that location so on so on well that we legitimately did have in some of the uh the offices at Wharton. we've had like people who you know there were certain days a week when they would be there and there would be other days a week when they were in a different location and so on so on so that's not stretching the truth too much and you do get companies engaging in all manner of stupid shit these days when it comes to trying to give the appearance of looking after their employees well-being and this kind of stuff sort of alternative medicine and what have you you can tell i'm not really big on alternative medicine well maybe they just made a a ridiculously mystical head of hr well the key thing is that if that character, the wellness person, was completely and utterly ridiculous, it wouldn't chime. It wouldn't chime with the audience. But I think there is a certain recognition. Even if they don't necessarily have somebody who's in their office each and every day of the week, they probably get that kind of stuff through the post from the company or one of the companies that's associated with their employer and and what have you. You know, a number of companies that still do private health care is presumably still fairly sizable, but I suspect that they also go in for this kind of thing as well. Okay, let me lay out a potential scenario for why Reggie may be the way that he is. 
and I realise that this just basically means rewriting the show. But there are a couple of things which are touched upon in the text that could be emphasised perhaps a bit more. So I referred to that comment earlier on from Chris about how the products are made in a factory in China. There is discussion about the possibility of creating a cardboard razor so that you don't have to have landfill full of disposable razor blades. Now I wonder if you could take a couple of elements like that and then have them play on Reggie's mind. That he was actually unhappy with what he was doing in as much as he didn't even like the stuff that he was being asked to authorise, produce, because he obviously he's not, not actually making the damn razors, but he's in charge of them. And rather than just having it that he really just needs to change his career or whatever it may be, he's actually got concerns about the whole structure of corporations and so on. Now, there are times where he alludes to this. There's times where he gives his speech, for example, where he talks about this kind of thing. But Was it the three main economic systems are capitalism, communism and stealing? There are people who say capitalism and stealing are the same thing. Yes, yeah, exactly. And he's given a little speech to his, his wife's class and the, the school. And he's sort of explaining, like, you know, capitalism, you know, okay, it's shit, but that's just what we've got, so we've got to sort of deal with it, so we've got to make the best of it, and so on. And actually, that's one of the few times where he's at his most rational. And he, he comes away from that quite happy. And had he left it at that, then he probably would have been okay, but of course he has to take it too far and invite all the class into the office, and of course that's where it all goes. There, goes there again, but, that bit, it just seemed like an office sitcom. Oh, I've invited a bunch of school children to the office and they're all running around. It could have been nice day at the office, if you remember that. The point I was getting at there was that if you had really hammered home that theme repeatedly, then just personally, I might have been more sympathetic towards Reggie. But the fact that he spends half his time chasing after Jasmine, for example, then that sort of makes me think, well... He doesn't actually seem... I mean, okay, he's troubled by those bits and pieces, but he's also troubled about the fact that people sit on the train with their headphones on. And after a while, you just sort of think, he's got some sort of void, and he needs to fill that void however he does it. But he just seems to be generally annoyed with everything and everyone around him. He's just sarky. So when he comes out with this stuff, I suppose now, you know, now we've got the idea of being non-PC rather than saying stuff that would be really horrifyingly shocking. He also seems to lack a little bit of... There's a great bit in the original where Reggie's... I wasn't listening to that. I was just looking at the dust in the sunbeam. It's rather nice. That weird little... He he doesn't seem to have quite those nice gentle fantasies. What's the thing about fantasies, actually? Because there is the thing that something happens then it turns out it was just happening in Reggie's head and then of course we have the obvious moment where it turns out it wasn't that just seemed like Walter Mitty-ish we've lost the whole thing of referring to his mother-in-law as a hippopotamus but in the original that sense was that was a hallucination every time Elizabeth mentioned her mother Reggie actually saw 16mm stock footage of a hippopotamus (laughs) yes do you know what it reminded me of? All the constant little here's what's going on in his head just now. It reminded me of Billy Liar. Yes, particularly the Jeff Roll version. Yes. 
And then I started thinking, so how could you make his... Well, for a start, make them hallucinations. How could you make them disorientating for the audience? It would have been interesting for it to look like the TV had changed channels by itself and then flicked back and then we realised Reggie saw that too. I just just keep thinking, how could you make a 21st century show about madness? An office worker going mad. Because, well, the original has it has the three walls, the video. T- I know that the 21st century version is saying, but it looks like a normal sitcom and it has its Ronnie Hazelhurst thing. And so some of the things that happen and it seems just to get a little edge by being set against things that look so normal. Whereas the new version stays normal. It's about a man who doesn't enjoy his job, can't communicate with his wife, and he's quite snarky about it, and he has little fancies in his head. He's not genuinely losing his mind. I want to see somebody suffer permanent psychological damage! No, okay, well, I was coming to the idea that we're getting away from the remit. And that's a horrible word to use, but let's face it, it's the 21st century, and it's the kind of bloody word that the BBC would use these days. It's getting away from the remit of the show itself. It's a post-watershed show, fair enough, but it's not supposed to be a drama. It's not supposed to be unsettling. I find the original a little bit unsettling, and the, the new one doesn't unsettle me. It looks like I'm watching a lot of other shows. I think a lot of that probably comes down to Leonard Roster's performance. I think it'd be very, very difficult to really replicate that with really anybody else, to be honest, because he's got that sort of look in his eye that... Yeah, I don't know, it feels is. a little bit like everybody's going, let's not be like the original, or just let's have the cachet of the original. And I know David Nobbs co-wrote this, but we're almost getting back to Vimto labels on Coke bottles. Because even though you seem to think that I despise Martin Clunes, <laughs> I don't, I think Martin Clunes could portray somebody really losing it in a moderately frightening way. I want this show to have got under my skin, and it doesn't, and it seems a bit like a wasted opportunity. And why the hell have I written Young here, as in J-U-N-G, as in the famous psychiatrist? What, why have I done that? I obviously had something to say about Jungian right, okay, psychology. I've got, I've got a suggestion. Well, actually, I've got a couple of suggestions for... No, tell me, why have I written Young? Why haven't I, I written haven't Freud? Got... <laughs> no idea. But okay, I've got a couple of suggestions. What for... was your degree in? It was politics. I did, I did, I did do philosophy for the first couple of years. But yeah. What's the main thing about Jung? Collective unconscious. Now I don't see the ah no right ha ha yes no it was a comic book I read called Action Philosophers. And there's two great panels set side by side. It was it's about I think it relates to Jung's idea of the collective unconsciousness and really one of the sources of neuroses in modern society which is this illusion that we have more control over our environments than we really do. And back in the old days, the really old days, before telly and radio and everything, people were a bit more accepting that they were at the mercy of forces they couldn't control. That's lacking. That's it. That's what it needs. That Reggie starts to see that there is something in life that cannot be turned on and off. He's lacking a certain amount of control, and he doesn't really understand the things that are happening around him. He doesn't even see where he entered this machine that he's in. Did I go a bit London weekend there? <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's all fair enough, but I'm sort of, I'm balancing this with the fact 
that, and I don't want to pull this card too many times, but it's got to be said, the show is fundamentally a light-hearted comedy. Now, that just means to say that it has to be all fluffy pink cushions and what have you, but this is 2009. By this point, we've had 10 years of the League of Gentlemen, followed by lots and lots of shows trying to tap into that sort of aura and be edgy and dark. Ah, but that's the thing. So they on. put the darkness on top and original Reginald Perrin and ever-decreasing circles. The darkness was underneath. And new Reggie Perrin seems to have simply omitted the darkness because darkness is done. Okay, I'm going to give you two suggestions. And I see. I want to see if, if you've got any other ideas for this. Two suggestions for how you could have an undercurrent going through this, where it's not anything overt, it's not anything that requires a viewer warning before the program, but nevertheless, if you had these elements in, you'd sort of think, I wonder where he's going with this. Right, first of all, the episode where they go to Finland, and this is one of the areas where you're in danger of completely losing your sympathy with Reggie, because he's completely and utterly engineered the trip and everything about it just to be with Jasmine. What if they'd actually slept together? What if they'd just done it? And then it was sort of there. It was something that needed to be addressed, perhaps at a later time or not. But does he tell his wife? Does he not tell her? Does he live in constant fear that he's going to be found out? What do you think? Do you think that that would add a sort of tension to things? I just want my craziness. I just want the audience to feel some sanity slippage. I just want to hurt people. All sitting in their little suburban living rooms, thinking that now they have widescreen TVs and deinterlaced things and they have the whole thing on box set. Oh yes, you can watch Game of Thrones. Television was invented with the Sopranos, wasn't it? Mark Lawson's so right. I just want to get to those people and put corkscrews in their ears without them really realising that's what happened. Right, second suggestion. Initially, I'm sort of thinking that Reggie aims this at CJ, but he doesn't have to. He could do it to other people as well. I can't remember the episode title. The episode of The Prisoner with Patrick Cargill. Hammer into Anvil. That's the one. Okay, what if Reggie was doing little things like that? Ha ha. Well, uh, have you ever seen the film Gaslight? No. There's two versions of it. I got accused the other day of gaslighting a friend. The people have now call it gaslighting. The central part of that is somebody being convinced that they're going crazy. And one of the things is the flickering of the gaslight. It's given rise to this idea. Gaslighting. Doing something to send somebody crazy. Go into somebody's house sometime and replace all the bulbs with a lower wattage. <laughs> <laughs> You've read the twits, yeah? Roldal. Oh, long time ago. I met Roldal, you know. Hold that thought. Hold that thought, because we'll be getting off topic. I but... hold on to that thought a lot. It's the only thing that's special about me. <laughs> you met Biddy Baxter as well. I gave Biddy Baxter a badge from my show. I never had a Blue Peter badge. <laughs> okay, so I may be misremembering this. I'm remembering this as this is something that Mr. Twit did to Mrs. Twit, but I may have got it the wrong way around. But Mrs. Twit has a walking stick. <laughs> Every night, Mr. Twit takes the walking stick and takes it into his little workshop and just saws the tiniest little piece off it 
no no thicker than maybe like a two pence piece and just does this day after day after day and so eventually she's walking with a stoop and i seem to remember that perhaps does he then go back on this and actually start adding bits to it so eventually the walking <laughs> stick is bigger than it was now something like that where if reggie say okay like all the little sort of trinkets and bits and pieces and nonsense that's in cj's office what if we saw reggie arrive early on occasion even though he always comes in and says 27 minutes late what if he occasionally arrived early or maybe snuck back into the office late at night yes well, i'm thinking original reggie steals a vehicle from work pollutes a river and sends an anonymous letter to try and convince cj that the river is running with blood <laughs> Modern Reggie just <laughs> seems to be lacking after that. I know you're worried about losing the audience's sympathy, but in some ways, Reggie being cruel like that would at least give the sense that something's very not right. He's not just irritated. So we have that. We have him fixate on his dopey secretary because he's just sees some untapped potential in her rather than he sees the sexy girl and thinks you're sexy. How quickly would you... Because the thing is, what I was going to say there about CJ is that CJ is a bastard. And in particular, he confesses to Reggie that... Because he's only been in this shaver company for a year. He was headhunted. And he has to confess to Reggie that he knows nothing about the industry, that he's promised the directors that he's got this new revolutionary idea, and he hasn't, and also that he spent the entire budget on a load of dud razors. And Reggie manages to get him out of this hole and CJ just blanks him afterwards. And then tells him to cheer up. Yeah, exactly. So I think that anything that Reggie does to CJ as a result of that, I think would be justified. Even if it's still a sign of Reggie slightly going around the twist, you wouldn't lose your sympathy with him. Whereas I think if he was then setting Anthony and Steve against each other, for example, he'd think, what's he doing that for? You know, why is, he, why is he having a go at them? Because actually, he does say to them at the end, he actually quite admires their constant enthusiasm. Even though he finds it quite an irritation day after day, he's also sort of marvelling at the fact that they are not completely and utterly jaded. And, you know, okay, they've got youth on their side, and maybe, you know, in forthcoming years, they'll get to the same point as, as, as he is then, but perhaps not. I know what you mean. I mean... I enjoyed the series overall. I am intrigued to see what happens in series two. I'm going to stick with it. I don't know. I mean, you said you've got the second series arriving on disc. I'm... Yes, I watched. I watched series two, and I only remember one thing happening in it. Not going to tell you because it's a spoiler. In fact, I think it's the cliffhanger for the end of series two. But I don't think there's any of the Martin Wellborn business or any of that cycle of madness now people are saying it's only 12 episodes why didn't you do both series the reason is is it's very easy to watch six episodes of something then six episodes of something else then six episodes of something else so that you can record all the podcasts closer together to buy you the time to watch lots and lots of episodes of something else for our last two before our summer recess we're stiffing you don't pull back for the, the general too. good there's no kfab in sitcom club don't pull back the curtain too much but no, I'm going to say that original Reggie Perrin was They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, by Napoleon the Fourteenth, and all new Reggie Perrin is the Donnie Darko version of Mad World. Okay, now this is going to get all sort of highfalutin, arty farty, whatever you want to call it, 
London weekend, let's say. But I'm going to put forward a suggestion. And I'm not saying that this is either right or wrong. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion about the merits or otherwise of this. Could it be that in 2009, given the fact that mental health is now something which is discussed out in the open, and you have awareness campaigns about it and so on in a way that you didn't have in 1976. Could it be that if Martin Clunes, if his character was slowly disintegrating, would it be as funny as Leonard Roster in 1976? Or would you perhaps have a different sort of feeling towards it? No, I think it's part of the process. I think it will be part of the process of talking about these things. Comedy can be part of that. I don't think the 70s version was pointing and laughing. The 70s version was itself a howl in the dark by David Nobbs. I don't doubt David Nobbs is very sane and very together, but that's him screaming about the things that possibly could have threatened that and prevented him from getting it together. Maybe he's looking at the kind of person he could have become. Nothing is beyond the touch of comedy. Occasionally you'll get threads on message boards and things. Is X topic funny? No. It's not a matter of whether something's funny. Is any topic beyond the touch of humour? And I think anybody who has undergone any experiences might be able, with sufficient skill, with sufficient good fortune, be able to make humour from that. We don't do trigger warnings, so I'm not going to actually say about any of the dreadful things that happen in the world. But if there was an event, a bad thing happened in the news, and lots of people were permanently damaged by it, and if you told me one of these people had started doing a show and it was full of good, hearty laughs, and it was very warm, I could believe that. It's not the same as cracking a joke about it. Not everything is suitable for a joke, Anything can be brought to humour and seen through that lens. Yes, yeah. I think there are probably certain words, certain terms, going back to Reggie Perrin specifically, I think there are probably certain words, certain terms which wouldn't be thrown around as much today as might have been in the mid-1970s. Well, actually not. So I've, I, yes, I have to kind of correct myself because... There were parts of the Jones subplot that just rank false Jones' reaction to it. So I'm not giving 76 Perrin a free pass after everything I said about how Jasmine is really just a rom-com character. But I really do just want to hurt people all the time. Okay, now I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to ask you to map out Series 3. There isn't going to be a Series 3 of Reggie Perrin because if there was, it would have been on by now, presumably. But... Where would you like to have seen it gone? I have to remember exactly everything that happens in series two. But let's start it from the other point of view. Reggie's gone and nobody knows where Reggie is. Is there any way you could sufficiently disguise? I'm not sure. I'm not sure you could really disguise Martin Clunes. Wouldn't it be interesting to get rid of a character from a sitcom? Start series three. Oh, you know, they're gone and then suddenly realise that you'd been watching them cropping up in scenes for the previous 25 minutes. That'd be quite incredible, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would be. It's it's one of the great tragedies of television that disguises really don't work. I remember seeing uh, 
detective story and the whole thing was that a woman had disguised herself as a man and nobody had managed to notice and it's like yeah I just I know which character that is I know who done it and we're a third of the way through <laughs> okay so on bounds you give him Richie Perrin thumbs up thumbs down thumbs in the middle I'll, I'll do thumbs in the middle because I did make the mistake of having watched the original too soon but you can't give too much of a blank check to any remake you can't just say well it's a new thing no you've put that label on it and if you start downplaying too many themes you can't do a, an album of john lennon cover versions and say well yeah admittedly i did change some of the lyrics so there wasn't so much about love and peace because that could get a bit preachy the thing is though that if you don't change aspects of it is there actually any point at yeah, all but there's a point what, oh what did what did they call that thing so-and-so ship also known as George Washington's Axe. How many aspects of something can you change it so that it stops being the original thing anymore? I think there is a point where you're not reworking the original concept. You make a movie called The Invisible Man, but he's actually just translucent. He's not the invisible man anymore. And there's no hard and fast rule, but you know it when you see it. You know it when... Can you think of a franchise where they've just changed so much that it's fallen to bits? Or they've changed so many things under the hood that the fact that the, the outer shell's the same doesn't really make any difference. Uh, yes, I can think of one. I, I very rarely cite professional wrestling in the sitcom club. But yes, there's, there's one that does spring to mind. Well, a restaging of a group called ECW, which was the brainchild of a chap called Paul Heyman. And that was supposed to be anti-establishment, very extreme, as the name suggested. And had a sort of fuck you sort of attitude to the corporate competition. And then 10 years later, the brand was resurrected, but now it was under corporate ownership. The characters and storylines and so on just didn't in any way resemble original ECW. It was just ECW in name only, but as far as the actual content was concerned, it was a completely different thing. That's the reason that's cited as to why it died in its heart. I don't think this is a case when it comes to Reggie Perrin, principally because of David Knobs' involvement in it. But I think that sometimes when it comes to these resurrections, restagings, whatever it may be, something like that is not fair because I've not seen the new version, so I can't compare it to the original, which I have seen, but something like Sweeney, for example. <laughs> you could just make a film about the Flying Squad with Ray Winston and... There you are. But they're getting the rub. They're getting the attention of the general public. What in the vast array of sitcom and sitcom-related entertainment are we going to be talking about next week on The Sitcom Club? Don't make fun. Yes, fine. We're going back to the old man about the house well. Because it will be, schedule slippage permitting, almost but not quite the 4th of July when the podcast goes live. So as part of our almost but not quite 4th of July special, we're taking one of our yearly opportunities to look at something American. And we're going to look at the Ropers because we talk about it a lot. We talk about Norman Fell breaking the fourth wall enough, I think, that it's time to take a look at the Ropers. Just the first six episodes because it was, it was broadcast out of a little separate strand. I don't think that a series in American terms, but we'll call it a series 
And I guess the George and Mildred comparisons are going to come out. I've tried to only watch two episodes of George and Mildred and not watch the other four. And actually, it's sort of old, but it's new because one of the principal people that's in the Ropers is Jeffrey Tambor. Of course, you see everywhere these days in adverts for Transparent on Amazon. So it's old, but it's also bang up to date. How about that? So next week, Stanley Roper will be frequently breaking the fourth wall. With his plunger in his hand. (laughs) As we analyse the Ropers, or as they're known in syndication, Freeze Company's Friends, the Ropers. If you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club, or you can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com. There are over 80, you heard me right fans, 80, 80 podcasts in the archive. They are all available at sitcomclub.com. And why not give them a listen? In the meantime, Ocho. Goodbye. This is Hey Home Co saying thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club. <laughs>